0: Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. Thank you for the folks that are gathered here tonight to hear your word. Thank you that you're speaking to us. I'm just confessing Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. that We're blessed with a deep hunger and thirst for righteousness and we will be filled. Thank you, Galatians 419, that Christ has been formed in us. And we just want to walk out the fullness of God as we sing about tonight. And Lord, thank you for the revelation of what we're going to study tonight. Mark fourteen in Jesus' name, Amen. I believe that you're going to hear some things tonight that maybe you've never heard before. You're going to hear some things tonight that you've never thought of, because in this study, I saw things and and put some things together and read some things that I had never thought of. We go through life and and we go through Christianity. How many of you were raised in the South in Southern? Christianity and, and Sunday school and and all those things are good. I thank God for all those. Thank God for the South. Thank God for Sunday school. But when you grow up in church and you grow up in the Bible and you hear the Easter story every year, and you read about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane every year, and you color the little sheets about Jesus holding the lamb and and you you kind of become desensitized to some of the things that actually happened during Passion Week. We lose the tension that is in the city of Jerusalem the week before Jesus is arrested and crucified. We lose some of, that's why it's called Passion Week. It's not called just everyday Easter, you know, week or whatever, flippity-floppity week. It's Passion Week for a purpose. So we're approaching Mark chapter 14, uh, the 14th chapter of Mark. And we're going to start in verse 32. And we need to note that we are now hours away from the crucifixion. We are hours away from the death of Jesus Christ. We have seen the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. We've seen the events that have happened during Passion Week. We've seen the, the last week of Jesus' life before His crucifixion unfold. We've seen the plot to kill Jesus intensify and unfold with, with great detail. We've seen Jesus anointed for barrier, uh, burial. Mary broke the perfume and poured it over his body, so he's now anointed for burial. We've seen the disciples partake of their last Passover, and we've seen Jesus in state. Uh, and release into the body of Christ the Lord's Supper and communion, and and we've seen all these things, and and by this time Judas has separated from the disciples. Where we pick up in Mark fourteen thirty two, Jesus is no longer with them. Judas is no longer with them. He's separated, and he's now working on his plot to kill the man who had invested so much in his life. Jesus had invested three and a half years into Judas. He had loved Judas. He had taught him so much. And yet this man is about to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And so our story picks up later that evening. We've had the Passover meal. How many of you enjoyed the last two weeks talking about the Passover? If you missed last week or the week before, get on our podcast and and read and listen and study and hear about the power of the Passover. And so now we turn to something that I think is a regular occurrence. Now Jesus goes to the garden to pray. How many of you have heard about the garden of Gethsemane, the place where Jesus prayed before the cross? I believe this was a regular occurrence because that's how Judas knew exactly where they were. That's how Judas knew to to find them. And, And I'll show you some things in this passage that lead me to believe this was something that they did on a regular basis. So I just want to read Mark 14, and I'm going to start in verse 32. And I'm going to read it so we can catch it on the recording. It'll be on the screen. I want you to follow with me. And we're just going to read it together. We're going to read the whole passage, then we're going to come back and break it down and dive into this. So they came to the place named Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here until I've prayed. We're going to look later on in Matthew and Luke where they're to sit and watch and to pray. They're not just to sit while Jesus goes and prays. They're to watch as Jesus is praying. 33 says he took with him Peter and James and John. This is kind of the leadership team of the disciples. And he began to be very distressed and troubled. This is Jesus. This is our savior. This is the one who, who faced Satan himself in the 40 days of temptation. This is the one who will reign King of kings and Lord of lords over all the universe, of all humanity. And now it says that he is very distressed. Notice he's not a little distressed. He's not a little uncomfortable. He's not a little uneasy. He doesn't have a little bit of anxiety. He is very distressed and he's very troubled. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. So he leaves Peter, James, and John and goes on a little further to pray. Verse 35 says, and he went a little bit beyond them and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, this is Jesus' prayer before the cross. He prayed if it were possible that the hour might pass him by. 36 says, and he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 37 says, he came and found them sleeping and said, Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? 38 says, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. How many of you can say amen right there? Verse 39 says, And he went away again and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. They didn't have an answer for why they were so sleepy, but I have an answer that we're going to share with you a little bit later. Verse 41 says, And he came a third time and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up! Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So let's jump back now to verse 32. We're just going to travel through some of these, and we're going to kind of look at the surface meaning and dissect that a little bit, and then we're going to jump into some of the the hidden, deeper meanings. So they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is probably, scholars tell us, a private garden outside of the city. Jerusalem now has swelled to possibly a 100,000 plus people because from uh, Jews from all over are coming back now to Jerusalem for the Passover. This happens every year, and the city is absolutely packed. And so there would be no place to get away, no place to have a private meeting. And so they're in the garden of Gethsemane. This is on the Mount of Olives. Now, Gethsemane actually means to press... So this is a garden where they would press the olives and get the oil. How ironic that Jesus went to the garden of crushing, the garden of pressing, which is just outside on the, on the Mount of Olives outside of the city. And so in a few hours, he's going to be pressed and he's going to be crushed so the oil of the Holy Spirit could be released into the body of Christ as we see in the book of Acts. And so the garden of Gethsemane literally means olive, Now, it was illegal to have gardens inside of the city because of all the manure that they would have to bring in for the plant. Somebody go, ooh. So all the manure would be brought in, and it would make the city ceremonially unclean. So all of these gardens were outside of the city limits. And this was um, what scholars think was a private garden. They think that possibly during Passover week in the past uh, previous years Jesus and his disciples would go and they would camp in this garden. Jesus knew the owner of the garden. They'd give him him access. He knew the garden well. Judas knew exactly where Jesus would be praying. Not only did Judas know... Where Jesus would be praying, but apparently he knew a back way into the garden because Jesus left his disciples and said keep watch Now everybody thinks that Jesus just wanted to go and get alone with God But why would he leave the disciples and say keep watch because he knew they were coming for him? He needed to talk to the father one more time and these these guys were on security detail They were standing guard. There was a manhunt. There was a bounty out for Jesus And these disciples were to watch and stand guard. And so Judas knew another way into the garden because he was able to sneak in and around and and go to the exact place where Jesus would be praying. And so Jesus said, sit here until I've prayed. He wanted the men to to be on watch, to have security. So verse 33 says he took Peter, James, and John. This is the leadership of the disciples. It's interesting, there's always groups of four in the disciples, and we see groups of three and groups of four. And so here we see Peter, James, and John. Now notice this here, that that, that Jesus is sensing the reality of of, of what is about to happen. As he's praying to the Father, more and more is revealed about what's getting ready to come. And I'm going to bring some things out to you about the garden that maybe you've never heard before. Um, these are very strong terms in the Greek languages. As as a modern reader, we're stepping into holy ground as we enter into the garden. Most people think that the victory over sin was won on the cross. And I'm not demeaning the cross because the cross is so powerful But really the victory over sin started right here in the garden because Jesus and his humanity had a chance to back out of the will of God. And so we're going to look at the temptation in the wilderness when Satan came and tempted Jesus for 40 days. And we're going to relate that to this. This was an incredible temptation for Jesus. And he's in the garden. He's faced with a a human decision. And so really the victory over evil, the beginning of that victory starts right here in the garden and Jesus apparently related this account to his disciples after the resurrection and we have a record of it now it's i could i could read this and study this and this this helps us when we face temptation when we when we have agony in our life when we are experiencing things in our life we can look to this in the garden and it will give us help now why was Jesus so troubled i want to show you some things here because the concern and anxiety of being separated from his father was was creeping in now to Jesus for the very first time in eternity I mean know Jesus didn't just become in existence. When Mary had the baby. That's not when Jesus began his existence. The Bible says he is the Lamb of God. Slain from the foundation of the world. As we heard last week. Jesus is and was and is to come. Jesus has been. He has no uh, beginning as we know beginning. So the man Jesus. Jesus came to earth and put on a flesh suit. But that's not when Jesus began. So for all of eternity. He's had perfect intimate fellowship with the Father. And now for the very first time. He's beginning to sense and feel the weight of what it's like to be separated from his Father. I believe, my personal conviction is this. Many people think when Jesus is on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many people think that's when God turned his back on Jesus. But I believe God began to separate and turn himself from Jesus in the garden. Otherwise, there would have been such a power there. There would have been such an anointing there. You understand that they could not kill Jesus until he laid down his life. You understand they tried to kill him and they couldn't stop him. So I believe in the garden, we're going to see the agony that Jesus began to feel and experience. I believe that's when God, the Father, began to turn himself from Jesus. I heard a preacher say one time, God turned his back on Jesus once, so he'll never turn his back on you. He'll never turn his back on me. And so Jesus here is, is now experiencing a moment apart from the Father that he has never known. Sometimes in the, in the middle of the night, one of our children, one of the babies may wake up and, and they want to know where mommy is. They want to know where daddy is. Maybe they're frightened. Maybe something scares them. And, and they will cry and scream and be, be, be in, in fear because they're separated from mom and dad. How many of you have had children do that before? But when I go in there and pat, pat them and say, it's okay it's okay, Daddy's here, Mommy's here. Instantly, they, they will calm down and, and because Mom and Dad is there. And Jesus, for the first time in eternity, began to sense the weight of the separation from His Father. Not only that, but here in the garden, He's beginning to sense the weight of sin. You know that Jesus, you know, we say Jesus took our sin. How many of you have heard preachers say that? Jesus took our sin. He didn't really take our sin. I understand. I know John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I understand there there is a taking away and removing of sin. But it's so much deeper. Jesus didn't just take our sin. The Bible says, and Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, that Jesus became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. You and I, we know sin. We experience it. We live in a cursed, fallen world. Jesus had never experienced sin and the darkness. What does the Bible say the wages of sin is death? Jesus had never experienced separation from His Father. He had never experienced the weight and the curse and the pressure and the agony of sin. And now the whole sin of the world is, is literally being transformed into the person of who Jesus is. Jesus is righteousness. And he laid that down. And the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin. He's, he's, he's becoming something. This death is now coming upon him. He, he had a tremendous concern for his family. I mean, if you're Jesus, you, you love, you love deep. Imagine your mother and imagine your father. If you knew Jesus was so close to his mother. And I can prove it the, the way that he looked at John and said, John, take care of my mom. He said, woman, this is your son. Son, this is now your mother. And that was the first Mother's Day. That's when Jesus looked and said, John, I want you to take care of my mom. Jesus cared about his family. He cared about his disciples. And he knew that this wrenching agony, this realization was about to come upon them. They were about to be separated. Imagine your best friend and your family. If you knew you were going to die in a matter of hours, and you loved them and you cared for them, so the weight and concern of all of his family is, is resting on his shoulders. Now look at this same verse here. He says, I am beginning to be deeply troubled. Look at verse 34 and look what he says. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death, meaning this weight of sin, this weight of separation, this anxiety of his family. Jesus could have died in the garden. He's not just saying, oh, I'm so tired, I feel like I could die. He could have died in the garden from the weight and the crushing pressure of sin and darkness and separation that he had never known he could have died in the garden. The victory over sin began in the garden. This is one of the most intimate moments of humanity in the life of Christ that we have access to. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus man? We magnify the God part of Jesus so much that we forget the humanity of Jesus. Yes, he's God, very God, 100% God, 100% man. Well, how can you be 200%? You have to be Jesus to be 200%. But he's, he's also human, humanity. He He faced everything as a man and overcame and conquered so that as a man, as a human, I can overcome by the power of God. This is an astonishing moment, an astonishing statement of concern. And so Jesus is fearing disruption from his father. He's fearing what his followers are going to do. So let's take a little deeper look. Let's look at Luke 22. I want you to see this passage here. The way Luke brings it out. Father, in verse 42, if you are willing. Jesus prayed. If you are... This is Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, He wanted out. Jesus wanted out. He said, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet not what I want to be done, but I want your will. Not my will, but yours be done. Hebrews talks about the joy that was set before him, allowed him to endure the cross. And I believe as he was praying, God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And I believe God gave him a glimpse of Tito being filled with the Spirit and Jim walking in God's presence and B.J. and Rincomb having this eternal uh, life in Christ. I believe that that gave Jesus joy enough to go on and endure the cross. Look at verse 43 in Luke 22 so an angel of heaven appeared and strengthened him Jesus was so weak he was so tempted to give up he was so tempted to walk away from the plan of God because of all the weight and the agony of sin that an angel came from heaven and the Bible says in verse 44 he prayed so fervently and was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood and there's a scientific Medical thing that happens when the human body is under such intense pressure. The capillaries in your skin actually can burst. And you can sweat. And blood begins through your pores and mixes with sweat. And you can actually drip what looks like sweat and blood mixed together. It's medically proven. Jesus, listen. Listen to this. He's in such agony of spirit that His blood veins were bursting. This is so intense. Now, Jared, we were going to look at Psalm 42, but I don't have time. But write this down. Read Psalm 42. It's a messianic prophecy. It gives us a glimpse into some things that Jesus dealt with. We'll, we'll look at verse uh, Psalm 42, 3. We'll just read a few, Jared. I'm going to jump around. Psalm 42, 3. Day and night. I only have tears for food. Yes. My tears have been my food day and
1: night. What they continually say to me, Where is your God? we we'll read
0: verse 4. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with a multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise. With a multitude that kept the children Amen. Now let me read verse 5. Thank you. L- look at verse 5. Why am I so discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. Look at verse 6. My God, I'm deeply discouraged, but I will remember you even from the distant Mount Hermon. Uh, Verse uh, 7. I hear the tumult, the raging sea, uh, the sweeping tides sweeping over me. Uh, And then he goes on to verse 8 and says, but you pour out your unfailing love. Look at verse 10. Their taunts break my bones. They scoff. Where is your God? Verse 11. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? The victory over evil began in the garden. So look at back in Mark 14. And let's go to verse 35. So they went a little beyond and fell to the ground. Now I want you to see something that you've never seen before. This word, fell, is the Greek word pepto. Not kind of like pepto-bismol, but without the bismol. It's actually "pepto." Listen what this means. We think... We think, and he fell to the ground. Okay, Jesus is is he's praying, so he's going to kneel down, and he's going to pray and have a good little sweet prayer in the garden. Listen what the word pipto means in the Greek, ladies and gentlemen. It means to be thrust down. It means to fall under judgment. Imagine if they said, Tito, you are guilty of murder. You are sentenced to death. How would you fall to the ground under the weight of that judgment? It means to be overcome by terror or astonishment or grief. It means to be under attack by an evil spirit or falling dead suddenly. Jesus didn't just kneel down to pray. He was thrust to the ground by agony. He collapsed. Look how society, pull up this picture. Look how society shows Jesus praying in the garden. The weight of the world was on Jesus and He couldn't even stand. He was thrust to the ground as a dead man because of the weight of my sin. Because of the weight of my disobedience. Jesus prayed often. Jesus went to the garden. We won't have time to look at it, but Mark one thirty-five says He got up in the morning and prayed. Luke 6 says He continued in prayer. Mark chapter 6 says that he would go up to the mountain to pray. So Jesus was used to praying, but this night was different. This was not just a prayer meeting. This was asking God if there was any other way. Let this cup pass from me. Look at Hebrews 5 and verse 7. It gives us a little glimpse of this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, specifically referring to the garden, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Jesus wasn't just saying, okay, Father, I'm about to go to the cross if there's anyone. He's crying in agony. He's screaming out. He has tears. He has fervent prayer. He's making petitions to God who could potentially save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent Submission. Great drops of blood poured from his veins. Look what he said in verse 35. He prayed, Mark 14, that that hour would pass him by. Mark 14, 35, that the hour would pass him by. Jesus is asserting that Yahweh is able to do anything. And Jesus is hoping that he would be spared the cross. This was the temptation of Jesus to give up. And Jesus prayed three times, which shows intensity. We have recorded three times Jesus went back and prayed. This shows an amazing, amazing intensity. Now I want to show you something here that you've never seen before. I'm confident. I want to show you something here that has changed my view of this entire passage. And I want to stick to close to my notes because this is so, so important. Let's look at verse 36. You've never, you've probably never heard this before. Maybe maybe some of you look at Mark fourteen thirty six. I want you to see this. This is taken out of context by so many preachers, so many ministers. I will never say this phrase again with the same disregard for what it means as as maybe even I've said it in the past. And he was saying, "Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will." Now, how many of you have heard the term Abba, Father? How many of you have heard preachers stand up and say, we're supposed to cry out to God as our Abba, Father? And how many of you have heard preachers say Abba is the Jewish term for Daddy or, or Papa, that it's an affectionate term and, and we use it so flippantly and we use it so irreverently." Guess what? This is the only time in Scripture, the only time in Scripture that Jesus called the Father Abba. He called him father, but there are other terms for father. In the Greek here, from translated from Aramaic, this is the only time that he used the absolute highest form of father, which is Abba, and it's in the garden. He called him father, but Abba was used one time. Paul only used this word Abba two other times in his writings. This is one of the most misrepresented terms in all of the Scripture. Many assume and assert that when Jesus addressed the Father, He was always using this term, but this is the only time. So let me read to you this quote from a commentator that I I study. His name is Dr. Utley. BJ's read some of his stuff. He's a tremendous commentator. Listen to this quote. It's not on the screen. I just want you to listen to this. This Aramaic... This term is, is, is a familiar term that children call their fathers at home. Dad, Daddy, Pop, Papa. Jesus knew family intimacy with Yahweh. This context is the only time in Aramaic that the word Abba is used. Jesus reveals the intense struggle he faced in this moment of fleshly temptation. Jesus describes his intense emotions. He falls on the ground. He prayed three times. Here Jesus played his trump card. His best chance of changing the father's mind about Calvary was when he called Yahweh by the most intimate family term of Abba. If anything would change the mind of God, it would be when Jesus cried out, Abba. The deepest affectionate term for father. But still every prayer was concluded with this, not my will, but thine. God the Father demonstrates His love for fallen humanity by not responding to Jesus' expressed will. God did not respond to Jesus' cry to find another way because He loved us. There needed to be an ultimate sacrifice for sin, but it was not easy or without great cost emotionally and physically for Jesus and for the Father. Jesus knows us because He knows the temptations humanity face. He faced these without sin. Fear and terror and discouragement and disillusionment faced Jesus, yet he did not sin. So when we fear, when we have terror, when we have disillusionment, when we have have agony, those things in itself are not sin. We can give those to the Lord and God can help us be strengthened. So the thing that would possibly change the heart of God is when Jesus cried, Abba, he said this cup, the cup is an Old Testament metaphor For one's destiny, Jesus faced fear, but yet he proceeded with the will of God. Anyway, so verse 37 in Mark 14 says this. He came and found them sleeping and said, Peter, why are you sleeping? Could you not watch for one hour? Now ministers and believers have given the disciples a very bad rap for sleeping. How many of you have heard preachers say they couldn't even stay awake for one hour. Jesus was praying. They couldn't even stay awake. We're not taking into context what has just happened. Jesus has just given them the final revelation that He's about to die, that He's about to be crucified. They are literally being crushed with grief. And matter of fact, Luke actually tells us this. Look at Luke twenty-two forty-five. 45. I don't hear preachers talk about this. They say, those crazy disciples, they couldn't even sleep for one hour. Look what Luke says. Luke says this in 22, 45. When He arose from prayer, He came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. I don't know if you have that or not, Jared. Luke 22, 45. When Jesus arose from prayer, He came and found the disciples sleeping from sorrow. Have you ever cried yourself to sleep? Have you ever been so sorrowful that all you could do is close your eyes and go to bed? The disciples could not stay awake because their hearts were broken. Their hearts were crushed because of the agony of what Jesus was about to go through. So I can't fuss too bad now at the disciples because of the context. Jesus had prophesied His own death. They longed to have human fellowship with Jesus, but yet, they were about to be separated now it says keep watching and praying so that you not come into temptation the word temptation means to tempt you with the goal of destruction satan uses our emotions against us satan will tempt us to the point to cause us to give up satan will tempt us to the point of our destruction now look at this verse he says i believe it's mark 14 i think it's 36 or 37 let's look at verse 36 in mark 14 And next one, I'm sorry, verse 37. I'm sorry, verse 38. (laughs) We'll get there. There we go. Keep watching, keep praying that you may not fall into temptation. Look what Jesus said. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Now let's talk about this for just a few minutes. This is not an excuse for Tito to sin. I've heard people say in counseling sessions, well, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yeah. The flesh he's talking here about giving up and denying and not following the will of God. How many know in the context of the garden, in the context of the crucifixion, we're not gonna just throw this verse around anymore? Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Notice here, Jesus says, keep watching, keep praying, because there's a temptation out there for your destruction. This is not an excuse for you to live any way that you want to live. This is not an excuse for me not to fight. This is a, this is an encouragement that although the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. The spirit of God on the inside is, is strong. So look at Galatians chapter 5. I want to, I want to tie this in tonight to how do we stay strong in the Spirit? How do we walk in the Spirit and not fulfill what our flesh would like to do? Look at this. It says, But I say to you, Galatians 5.16, Walk and live habitually in the Holy Spirit, responsive to and controlled by and guided by the Spirit. Then you will certainly not gratify the cravings and desires of the flesh. I've heard preachers say, Don't fulfill the gratifications of the flesh. Don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. This is not a command. Not gratifying and fulfilling the cravings of the flesh. This is not a command. Are you ready? This is a promise. This is a promise, B.J., that when you walk and live habitually in the Holy Spirit, when you respond to and in control by and guided by the Spirit, you—it it is a promise that you can live a life where you do not fulfill the gratifications of the flesh and the desires. Now, I heard a preacher today just listening and studying on this, give this illustration, and I've never heard of this before. When we're to follow God, when we're to follow after God and follow after the Spirit, it's not like the Daytona 500 where the race cars follow the pace car. How many of you have seen NASCAR? Maybe Rincom's the only one that doesn't know. You know what NASCAR is? Okay, she knows what NASCAR is. So in NASCAR, you've got a pace car, and then you've got all the other drivers, and they're trying to keep up with the pace car. That's not how we follow the Lord. This is more of of a train car hooked onto the locomotive. The Holy Spirit is the locomotive and we are the train car. And the law of God is a railroad track, it's not a ladder. So many people view the law of God as a ladder, something you have to do and you have to climb, when in fact it's a railroad track. You and I, we are the train car. And when we're hooked into the train, by itself, how many of you know anything about trains? A train car by itself can't go anywhere. Can't do anything. But when that thing is attached and hooked and latched onto the power source, it becomes an unstoppable force. You, how I many you know it's hard to stop a train? How many of you heard that it's hard to stop a train? Cars break, trains don't. You've heard that before. Everybody knows that. So the train car by itself is nothing. But when it's attached and connected to the power source, it is unstoppable. Jim by himself is nothing, but when he's in the vine, when he's walking in the Spirit, when we're led by God, when we're connected to the locomotive of the Holy Spirit, we have a promise that we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Look at verse 17 right here in Galatians 5. It says this in Galatians five seventeen: For the desires of the flesh are opposed to the Holy Spirit. Jesus' desires in the garden were opposed to what the Spirit of God wanted. Notice this here, the desires of the Spirit are opposed to the flesh, godless human nature. For these are antagonistic to each other, continually withstanding and in conflict with each other. Listen, let me help you here. The Spirit of God and your human nature are in a battle, are continually in war together. You know what the human life is? The human life is not that you don't have an evil thought. The Christian life. You know what the Christian life is? Not that you don't have an evil thought. You know what the Christian life is? Not that you don't ever sin. You know what the You know how many of you've ever sinned and you wanted to do it? Am I the only one? Okay, BJ, thank you. I'm up here all by myself. You sinned and you wanted. Well, I just fell into sin. You did not fall into sin. You jumped into it. Nobody made you do that. You did it because you wanted to. Everybody in the room has sinned because you wanted to. How many of you have driven 60 in a 55 because you wanted to? Okay, everybody in the room has sinned because you wanted to. The devil made you do it. The you do it. So the Christian life is not that you, are, 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 that you don't have any sin, you don't ever have an evil thought. The Christian life is that you are at war. You know how I know I'm a child of God? Because the things I want to do, I don't want to do. And the things that I do, I don't want to do. I am in a battle. I am in a war just like you. My The Spirit of God with my flesh, they're continually withstanding each other. They're continually in conflict with each other. And so I am not free, but I'm prevented from doing what I desire to do. Jesus faced this in the garden and He prevailed. Therefore, I can face this in my life and I can prevail. Look at Galatians 5.18. So the Spirit of God and my human nature are continually at war with one another. At 17 it, Jared. I'm sorry. I didn't have 18 on there. So listen, if the Christian life looks hard, we must remember that we're not called to live it by ourselves. We're called to be connected to the locomotive. We're called to be connected to the power source. And when he says, walk in the Spirit... It means be hooked up with God. And, and this is what another minister wrote that I put in here. The Spirit has landed to do battle with the flesh. So take heart if your soul feels like it's in a battle. The Spirit of God has landed to do battle with the flesh. So take heart if your soul feels like it's a battlefield at times. Because the Holy Spirit and your flesh should be continually at war with each other. That's how I know that the Spirit of God lives in me. Now look at Galatians 3, 4, and 5 as we we wrap this up. Have you suffered so many things and experienced so much for nothing? To no purpose? If it is really to no purpose and in vain, look at verse 5. Then does he who supplies you with his marvelous Holy Spirit and works powerfully and miraculously among you do so on the grounds of your doing what the law demands or is it because of your believing in and adhering to and trusting in and relying on the message that you've heard? So let me break this down for you. Does God supply you with His marvelous Holy Spirit? Does God work powerfully and miraculously among you on the basis of your doing and your struggling and your fighting and your efforts? No! No! Does God work in your life just on what the law demands? No, He does it because of your believing in and adhering to and trusting in and relying on. God works in your life because you are connected to the power source and therefore you walk in the Spirit and you don't fulfill the lust and temptation of the flesh. Jesus was so connected to the Father that He could pray in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. So we've got to meditate on God's promises. We've got to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let the Spirit of God reign over our life and then put our faith in the Son of God. Never forget the wonder of God. I think when Jesus was in the garden, as we wrap this up, And he's praying and he's facing temptation. So now we can pray. We can face temptation. We can stay connected to the power source. When you're led by the Spirit, you don't fulfill the temptations of the flesh. I think one thing that pushed Jesus to say, not my will but yours be done, was he had in view the wonder of God. He had in view the wonder and the goodness of God. And he knew his Father would not let him down. He knew in three days his Father would help him rise from the dead. And he knew he'd have a a place at the right hand of God forevermore. So when we're going through tests and trials that are sent to destruct you, you can know that God has a plan for you. You can know that God has a good plan for you and you stay connected to the power source. And in those situations, you can pray, Lord, your will be done.